Well, welcome to the podcast. My name is Father Bill W. I am an Episcopal priest here in Austin, Texas, and uh, uh, been in recovery for a, a long, long time, interested in the, and that's what these podcasts are about. Invite you to go to our website. It's called Two Way Prayer, and uh, that is the form of meditation and prayer that uh, many of the pioneers in AA did early days of the program coming out of the Oxford group, which we're going to get into in this, uh, this episode. And while you're there, please sign up for the newsletter. I'm doing a new video on two-way prayer. That's why I've not been doing uh, the workshops as regularly as I had in the past. I get a lot of requests for that, but we're in the final stages of editing a new uh, video. We will put it up on the website, and then hopefully that'll take the place of having to do monthly workshops on the process and uh, allow us to kind of get into some some other areas that uh, are of interest to me. So my guest, Stephen Haynes, he's professor of religious studies at Rhodes College and adjunct professor of recovery at Fuller Theological Seminary. And Stephen's written a new book, Why Can't Church Be More Like an AA Meeting? And in, in his book, Stephen explores the similarities and the differences between communities of faith and communities of recovery. So that's what we're trying to explore in this series. We, we always hear, you know, I'm spiritual but not religious. So the question I'm going to be asking and trying to get some answers from some folks is, is how do those two overlap? What's, what's the place for each? Do they, uh, do these two worlds uh, communicate with one another? And if so, how? And uh, what are some mistakes to avoid? And maybe some things that would be helpful to pursue. So Stephen, uh, welcome back. It's, it's good to have you. And I really appreciate your taking time from your schedule to share your experience, strength, and hope with us and, and information. So good Thanks, to have Bill. you. Good to be here again. And congratulations on the new book. Uh, I, th I think it, it fills a hole. It, it did for me, so I, I really found it uh, fascinating. And uh, put a link to it in the uh, show notes and encourage people to, to go there. I'm interested in this, this episode, we're going to kind of get into some of the historical stuff around the Oxford group and the creation of AA and uh, many of those kinds of issues. But I thought it might be helpful for our listeners to, to just take a few moments to look at the role of religion historically, traditionally, in the life of uh, human beings. You know, I mean, no, almost no matter what culture you go to, there's uh, something going on and it gets embedded in their traditions, but it's, it's trying to serve a function. You know, what is that function, do you think? What's People have defined it different ways. It seems to me that belonging is a big part of it, right? Uh, being part of a community that's larger than oneself. Also connecting to higher powers or a higher power, uh, feeling like you have some knowledge of connection with, you know, that which is greater than yourself. When people who are spiritual, uh, but not religious, or so they say, define religion, the things that they point out are dogmatism, you know, certain prerogatives and authority. I don't know that that's what people who are religious think that religion does for them. I think people who are religious would say that it does a lot of the same things that people who are spiritual say spirituality does for them. That is, 
uh, connection to other people, sense of, of the holy, a sense of connection to God. So as, as we discussed earlier, I think the, the categories have blurred a lot. And it's understandable that people who are advocates of recovery want to downplay the religiousness of 12-step fellowships because that's a big turnoff for a lot of people. A lot of people have trauma around it. But the way people in recovery often experience recovery, I think, uh, has a lot to do with these, these sort of traditional functions that religions play, the sense of community, sense of belonging, uh, sense of being connected to something greater than oneself. All that's what could be argued as 12-step language. Yeah. So when I, you know, the way I approach this is um, there's something about the human condition that scares the hell out of us. You know, it's like, it's like, I need to relate to the powers that are beyond me. Right. Uh, you know, in 12-step in language, every life is unmanageable. Yeah. You know, at its core, there's an yeah. unmanageability that right. comes uh, with with being a human being, right. you know, and uh, and so 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 we 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 find ways to connect uh, with this, and I guess for me that's the role of religion. But you know, in our last episode, you you spoke about vital religion, yeah, and and we kind of paused uh, because yeah. there's religion. And there's vital religion, right. you know, and it's the vital religion that brings the juice, the energy, the connective uh, tissue that, that I need. And the other brings atrophy right. and it tends towards, towards that. Yeah. So I guess in, in your book, how you, you met that through in your faith tradition and then how you came across it differently an expression mm -hmm. of it differently in the recovery communities yeah. and yeah. how how do these two get along with one another yeah so are we recording yeah okay uh yes yes i never stopped okay good um yeah so for me as i describe in the book my early experiences in the church were very vital there was a mm. lot of a lot of emphasis on experience, on conversion, on, um, you know, staying, you know, living the life of the spirit, staying sort of plugged into the power source of God. And as I matured and particularly as I pursued my education, the vitality uh, seemed to sort of drain out of my faith, right. which I think happens to a lot of people for, for, for a variety of reasons. And I think what I found in recovery was that vitality returned in a very unexpected way. Yeah. Um, I didn't go to a 12-step meeting to get spiritual vitality. I went because my therapist said, you need to go, and because my wife was in recovery, and I wanted to understand what was happening. And But over time, I just felt uh, something that, you know, often had eluded me in church, mm -hmm. this sense of, of real uh, connection, dependence, community, you know, welcome, all these things that people use to talk about 12-step recovery, particularly Christians who have, have missed those things. So that was a really unexpected thing for me. And then the question was, how do I relate this to my 
religious, my more traditional religious life, where I don't feel so much vitality. People are nice enough and mm-hmm. doing the right things and supporting each other, trying to live out God's call. But the sense of that bond of brokenness is what's missing for so many people, right? When I have students go to 12-step meetings and they report back, one of the things that they almost universally say is mm-hmm. there was a sense of, of vulnerability, of willingness to not be okay. Yeah. I think it was Jung said something I really love, you know, the people who don't find God, they haven't looked low enough. <laughs> That's good. Yeah. <laughs> but when you get low, then the ego has to turn to that power greater than self. Yep. Right. And that's what then opens the door. So uh, I think a lot of people in churches, you know, understand theoretically their need yeah. for God, but right. the sort of existential feeling of I've got nothing else to rely upon right now um, mm-hmm. is is often fleeting for people. Yeah, yeah. So uh, so let's dig into some of the history here because this thing started. You, you might say. Uh, the Oxford group. You you reference it a number of times in your book, the influence of this on the creation of uh, Alcoholics Anonymous. So let's uh, let's talk a little bit about uh, Frank Bookman, the founder of the group, what was going on with him. And and I want to start with his faith tradition. So he's coming out of a German pietist uh, background, I, I understand. Right. Can you tell us a little bit more about what that might have done for him? Well, to me, pietism is another way of saying vital. Yeah. Um, it, it's a kind of acknowledgement that faith, it's going to have emotional manifestations, and it's going it, to it's going to be internalized. It's not just going to be some, what you believe intellectually or what you do, movement, religious movements, but there's going to be a, what the Methodists call a strange warming of the heart, right? Mm-hmm. <clears throat> that, that Wesley experienced. So I think it's similar in, in German pietism. And so that sets him up to expect something from Christianity that I think um, perhaps many people didn't expect, especially at the time he was living. And he was probably uh, going along at a somewhat superficial level, let's say, to, to take Frank's inventory. <laughs> Uh, I think he'd agree with that. Yeah, okay. So he's going along at that level. And then he gets into a fight with his board of directors. It was over the food bill, how much he was spending for the food bill. I didn't know it's the food bill. That's interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Frank, stop spending so much money feeding these guys. Mm -hmm. And and he gets a resentment. Mm -hmm. Uh, So we're talking about feelings. Yeah. And, then, and then we're talking about uh, my relationship with the divine, but what is in between my relationship and the divine now is this resentment. Yeah. And it cuts off his relationship with the divine because it's, he's cut it off with these six guys on the board of directors. Yeah. And then he undergoes a conversion experience, not dissimilar to the one Wilson underwent. It's interesting that the the one of the links between the two is resentment, right? That's described That's as right. the, num- the number one offender in the big book. And yeah. certainly Bill was familiar with resentment. I just think it's so interesting that, you know, here's a guy, I think it was 1908 when he under, underwent this conversion. He was already, you know, mm-hmm. uh, a professional 
Christian. He was already in full-time right. Christian Lutheran ministry. minister. Yeah. 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 He was somebody who was supposed to have figured out the spiritual life. And he realizes that he's, he's, he's just sort of paralyzed until he lets go. And he does it at the Keswick uh, sort of annual service in, in England. Right. And yeah. for whatever he heard was what he needed to hear. And he's able you know, to it, it, it was a, it, he says it was a, a woman, uh, Jesse Penn Lewis was her name, uh, and she gave a sermon on the cross. And, and what he says was she didn't say anything new. Mm -hmm. Intellectually, everything she said, I knew that already. Mm -hmm. But something happened to me mm -hmm. when she was talking, you know, and, yeah. and it, it, it was it, it was these the resentment that he had towards these six guys yeah. and, and he recognized that he was the seventh wrong man. It was, it, it was bottom. It was a bottom yeah. Yeah. for him. Emotional back to the, back to the, uh, the feeling that's going yeah. on. Yeah. 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 So he, he experiences this sort of vitality in a, in an unexpected way. Right. And the other thing about Bookman that I like to think about is that the sort of, the environment he lived in and the people who mentored him. I think of the Oxford group as the product of a long development yes. with guys like um, Henry Drummond and Henry Wright and the sort of 19th century evolution of evangelism, which in the middle of the century had emphasized tent revivals, large meetings, um, sort of uh, great speakers, and sort of went underwent this evolution where it, the emphasis became individual uh, relationships, one-on-one, uh, -on -one, you know, changing the world by changing men and so forth. And Bookman had a, a role in that, uh, in translating that to collegiate, you know, the collegiate revival scene. And I think that was a crucial step in creating the Oxford group that AA could emerge from. Because if you think of, of AA, it's not, it's not a public thing. It's very uh, private, often one-on-one. Mm -hmm. -on -one. And um, and I think that that shift to what Bookman calls soul surgery mm -hmm. um, was was really crucial and is really at the heart of what AA took. Yeah, uh, I'm going to jump ahead in my note. He once described he was asked to describe his program. He was coming back from China and a, and a woman said, oh, Dr. Bookman, I have a hard time understanding your philosophy. Can't you give it to me simply? And he went down to his cabin and came back with what, what has known historically as the five C's. And, and this is a, it's a nice description and, and plays a huge role, I think, in, in trans moving mm -hmm. whatever, uh, from, from Oxford group to AA. So, so mm -hmm. uh, worth, worth a, a moment or two going through these. And this is what Bookman did. He gained the confidence of a person. Mm -hmm. Don't hit them with theology. Don't hit them with, in the alcohol sense, don't, mm -hmm. don't hit them with that. Gain their confidence. Yeah. And you do that in, in part by the second C, which is confession. Yeah. But confessing your own sins first. Right. Uh, and then comes the conviction, which is what we're really kind of getting at here. Yeah. You know, um, uh, that uh, I... I I'm responsible for, for my part, and I need to let go of it. Then comes the conversion, and then finally, uh, which is the change, 
And then yeah. comes the continuance that it's not a one shot deal, but this, this ego thing is going to manifest repeatedly throughout my life. Get used yeah, to I, it. I talk about in the book, Bill, that um, I see the Oxford group as the first parachurch group. And mm. there's a little bit of an anachronism here. Most parachurch, the American parachurch movement really starts after World War II in movements like um, Youth for Christ, who are focused on you know, reaching out to youth who have been alienated by the church. Mm -hmm. And, but I think it's exactly what, what Youth for Christ and other groups in post-World War II America were trying to do was basically what the Buckman was trying to do, trying to reach people who perhaps, who weren't interested in the church or perhaps turned off, but to reach right. them one-on-one -on -one in a language they could understand. You know, the, the book, I can't remember the name of the author, but the, sort of the sort of standard history of the Oxford group talks about house parties and talks about uh, Gar maybe uh, Garth Garth Lean uh could have been but yeah. but at any rate you know the the description of you know staying away from churches church buildings at least mm -hmm. staying away from doctrinal discussions of any kind no sectarian squabbles right this was an attempt you know not only to um recreate first century Christianity but to avoid all the debates and differences that had caused division within Christianity over the over the centuries right so to get to that vital core that mere Christianity and I think that's what all parachurch movements of all time have tried to do right trying to um, get away from the the things that bog the the gospel message down in churches and take the sort of vital core and make that available somehow in a more neutral environment then and I had to go and, and work on that but I had a really hard time with the church. And, and I was struggling with the issues that, that we're talking about here. You know, I was attracted to AA. I was finding there the things that I ought to be finding in the church, but was not. Yeah. And yet was missing some of those things in my 12-step uh, recovery process. So uh and and when i got and, and the history opened the door for me mm -hmm. you know when i started studying about the oxford group and and i'll tell you this uh Stephen, it, the the title that they first went by the, the group has had four names over right. the years but the original was a first century christian yeah. fellowship so let's talk about that first century. Uh, this, is, this is your area of expertise that people were experiencing. And there we are with that word again. Yeah. Having an experience through Jesus that yeah. was transformational for them. Yeah, it's interesting they chose that title because I think what they had in mind was the Church of Acts chapter two, right? I don't think they had in mind the Church of First Corinthians, which is also a First Corinthian church, but which is as, about as dysfunctional as you can imagine. Mm -hmm. But but what the picture of the church in, in Acts, I think, represented for them was this pre-institutional church where you right. had the apostles and you had the people and you had a, a sort of a concord. Everybody was on the same page. Uh, there were signs and wonders. The Bible tells us there were um, conversions happening all the time. People weren't squabbling over, you know, what color the carpet should be in the church or should we have grape juice or wine when we celebrate communion? And I think this was, um, you know, there's this movement in American Christianity called primitivism. And right. I talk about this in the book, 
you know, the Oxford group is really a species of that, that larger movement, which can be found in denominations as well. And I think it's an understandable desire to get back behind all the institutional stuff that, that gets in the way of the message. And I think Oxford group was arguing as other parachurch groups do is that the gospel message is separable from the church. It's not completely the institution, the institution, the institution. It yeah, doesn't mean yeah. that that there's an absolute disconnect. Um, people who, you know, find the gospel through the parachurch movement, whatever it is, you know, ought to get involved in the local church, but they're not the same thing. Mm -hmm. Right. Uh, Bookman then began experimenting with what is effective in bringing this message, particularly to young people, because he's working at the universities, mm -hmm. what's effective and what is not, right. all right? And one of the things that he stumbled on, onto uh, are, are, are the four absolutes mm -hmm. uh, from uh, Presbyterian minister, uh, Robert Speer, eh? honesty, purity, unselfishness, and love. These were the standards. And, right. and again, if you want to understand the the history of AA, these these are these are key, you know. A it's simple, mm -hmm. you know. I don't have to memorize the Ten Commandments and the Seven Deadly Sins and the, right. uh, all all of the um, uh, structures that build around religion, you know. Uh, I can get to the core. Are you honest? Are you, are you a liar? Are you loving yeah. or are you fearful? You know, it just, just kind of cuts right right down to it. Well, you're the expert on this, so I have a question for you. Because oh, I good. That, okay. <laughs> that, that, you know, Bill W. decided at some point that the four absolutes were kind of counterproductive for him and working with alcoholics. But yeah, I also know... His, his, his expression was, you can't expect them to get good by Thursday. <laughs> yeah. Well said. Yeah, yeah. But I know that four absolutes were really important for those who were practicing two-way prayer or guidance as the Oxford group put it because there was they realized there was the the possibility the tendency even for us to distort you know the message from God and and uh have, oh, have selfishness or whatever uh get into how, how the ego is going to slip slip in yeah. and in the name in using God's words here's here's the message yeah you know? so the four absolutes were a guard against that is that is that the way exactly exactly a guard against your thinking uh, a, a standard. They also yeah. call them the four standards. Mm -hmm. That if it if it if if what I am hearing or doing, because it also became how they did what we would call inventory. You know, the fourth step. They used the four absolutes uh, uh, to do that. If it, if it doesn't meet that standard, it it can't be from God. Right. Very simple. So, but but uh, and Dr. Bob loved them. Mm -hmm. got buried next to them if you look at his gravesite in ohio you know mm -hmm. uh but wilson was uh, very hesitant yeah and didn't like them but he said he put them in step six and seven which i thought was really interesting and it gave me a whole new perspective yeah on what six and seven are about and what i've kind of come down to is you aim for perfection which is god but you settle for progress, which mm -hmm. is human. And, and, and it maybe sound like a subtle difference, but if I'm just aiming for progress, 
Yeah. My ego can get away with all sorts of stuff. Yeah. But well, if that's you a said, good way of putting it. That makes yeah. sense with the progress, not perfection. Uh, yeah, so, and I've had some discussions with, uh, and there's a whole strain of AA historians who uh, really take Wilson's part in that. Uh, but I, I, I was able to, to look at them differently. And I think to look at them in the way that they were intended, mm -hmm. not that you're going to achieve them, but that you're going to aim towards them. Right. I've yet to do a whole day <laughs> living, yeah. living perfectly by the absolutes. Not a whole day. I think most of our listeners can relate to that. That's right. That's right. But then that becomes the material for further growth. Right. And that's what makes, uh, that's why I think they're key to, to reestablishing the vitality in prayer and in living and in my relationship to the steps mm -hmm. you know it's it, it's it's constantly watching I, I use the example of uh, due north i find it really helpful mm -hmm. you know uh, you set your compass for due north which is perfect mm -hmm. and then you stray you know, mm -hmm. if you're a pilot you know that and you constantly readjust mm -hmm. but you don't set your 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 compass for Kind of north, halfway north, not yeah. south. Yeah. <laughs> aim, aim, aim high. Yeah. Uh, and and you know, I I I wonder. There, there's a there, but there's a balance there, Stephen, isn't there? There's yeah. a real delicate balance because you can you you can float towards perfectionism, and then you're screwed. Yeah. You're screwed. Yeah, so he would experiment, and he did it at the universities, and, and I think he, he was part of the YMCA, which was a very different, I mean, just like maybe the churches have really lost focus, the YMCA, uh, you know, doesn't have the focus that it had at one time. Right. You know, but that was a place where people were changing. Yeah. Smudging and saging, meditation, acupuncture, psychodrama, reiki, uh, although these practices took me out of my comfort zone, I eventually came to appreciate many of them. Others, however, consistently triggered what I call my bullshit detector. Uh, everyone needs a good bullshit detector. I've That's... sure got one. <laughs> oh, me too. Me yeah. too. It's better when operating on others than it is on myself, though. That I have noticed that. <laughs> yeah, I know it doesn't it doesn't point backwards. <laughs> not, but not yeah, me. I just I describe that because it seemed like a great way to indicate to people that the world of recovery is is just quite diverse. You just don't know what you're going to encounter and in a way of spirituality. And for somebody who's sort of traditionally religious as I am, it creates a bit of a dilemma. I I I will I guess give myself uh, pat on the back for being willing to do a lot of those things. But as I mentioned, Reiki was kind of the limit for me because, you know, I never felt anything when people were moving energy around my body, you know, uh -huh. with their hands. And although I, I know people who swear by it, but the thing that really bothered me about Reiki was the claims, the theological claims they made for it, right? With, which were sort of unreflective, you know, this is divine energy. This is how God presents, you know, himself and so forth. And so I use that to jump off in the chapter to talk about you know what what the church can provide for aa for 12-step fellowships in general is a kind of grounding in theology 
a kind of theological discipline, right? When we talk about God, when we talk about divine things, you know, what are our, uh, what are the criteria? What are the norms? Um, you know, what are the limits? Right. So, so I mean, in the Judeo-Christian, to take that as an example, you know, I mean, there's 5,000 years of experimentation with many of the things that you, that, that you identify yeah. in that paragraph, you know, yeah. that there's a need people have for ceremony. There's a yeah. need that people have for silence. There's a need people have for pilgrimage. Yep. or sacred spaces, but the traditional churches, by and large, uh, are failing to fulfill those for many. Yeah. And so AA and other 12-step try to take them onto themselves. Yep. Yep. And if they're not careful, this is my point, uh, they're going to do the exact same thing that happened in the church. They will become institutionalized yeah. mechanical and the juice will stop flowing the vitality will not be there yeah so how do you keep it an adventure yeah you know you know it's interesting centering prayer is one of the practices that a lot of people in recovery uh use for, as a step 11 practice and mm -hmm. i mentioned in the book that i went to a centering prayer retreat uh in st louis and and basically did it for a weekend what I learned about Centering Prayer is that it was developed, I think, in the 60s or 70s by Catholic priests who were concerned about how many Catholics were becoming Buddhists, basically right. doing a lot of Eastern meditation. They wanted to demonstrate that there was something in the in the Christian tradition that was comparable, that was and fulfilled the same needs. And I think the church can be on the defensive here, right? If if people are, you know, if 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 some of the practices I mentioned there at the beginning of that chapter are becoming incorporated in someone's spiritual life, how do they relate to what they're doing in church? Do they, are they embarrassed to even mention them? Um, do they just assume that everything that, you know, has the word spiritual attached to it, you know, is of the same value? It takes some discernment. And I, I don't in the book tell people how to discern, but, but that discernment's important. And I, and I suggest some Christian uh, resources for creating a theology of recovery. And that's probably the the place where I felt most I was out over my skis uh -huh. in this book but I you know I talk about some of the resources we have in the tradition that help us understand recovery and that uh, ought to be utilized music Let, let's take a few examples though like music uh you, you talk about holotropic breath work uh mm -hmm. a lot of that stuff was done originally with uh using LSD to yeah. bring about a, a, a psychic change. Yeah. But then they found that music properly uh, choreographed uh, can do the same thing. It has the power to shift you from left yeah. brain to right brain. Yeah. You know, send you on a journey. Of sharing and stuff. And I just found it super powerful because it was a combination of the things that I desired, that I uh, responded to in both in both contexts. Yeah, uh, you, you're going back to what fed into Bookman. Uh, Moody Moody was one who who certainly had an influence there too. Mm -hmm. But he had. I found it interesting. He he's preaching to the crowds, and uh, he's getting some response. 
But then he finds a guy named Stanky and Stanky brings the music and the people respond to the music mm. because it reaches down beyond yeah. words yeah. to that place where we feel separated, isolated, and want to join. And it allows me uh, to have the, Jung would call it the transcendent function yeah. is realized. You know, and that's what ceremony, good ceremony, yeah. is is really designed to do. Right. I, I, I visited a group called All Addicts Anonymous uh, many years ago, and, and they were started by uh, a fellow who, Bill Wilson was his sponsor, uh, Thomas Powers was his name. He uh, helped Wilson write the 12 and 12, and a, a major influence uh, mm -hmm. in in some of that work. But he start, started kind of an AA commune, I would describe it, mm. in upstate New York, mm. where 50, 60, 70 people from all around the country came, built houses, and mm. tried to live their life around the 12 steps. Huh. And they, so it's a very intense. And I was kind of fascinated when I, when I found it and, uh, and went to visit them. And interestingly, they, they had their Saturday night 12-step meeting, okay? And they played music. Mm -hmm. Every Almost everybody in the commune, the ashram, kind of learned an instrument. Mm. And they played music. And they said to me, it was fascinating. They said, now, now you're going to watch for this. You'll, you'll see a combination of hymns mm -hmm. and drinking songs. Mm. And they blended the two together, you know? And kind of, it was funny. It was wonderful. Yeah. But, mm -hmm. but the energy, the energy mm -hmm. was there, you know? Mm -hmm. So music and, and those, those kinds of things bring something to the table. Yeah. Silence brings something to the table. And, 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 and I think, uh, was it Rupert Sheldrake? Are you familiar with him? Uh, Cambridge professor, looked at several things in the ch church that he said, well, these things bring me to life, you know, uh, mm -hmm. lots of things I don't agree with theologically, yeah. but man, I don't want to lose this. I mean, we're yeah. just coming after the thing with uh, Elizabeth. Uh, God bless her. She's finally been put to rest. <laughs> Must have been yeah. exhausted after all the, <laughs> the ceremony. Yeah. Uh, People have different reactions to it but one of the things that it does really extremely well is it combines i think the best of the church with the best of aa it's music is a big part of it in fact you show up you eat which is another thing that we could say is sort of right. fundamentally human and That's then right. you listen to to music for half an hour and then to testimony and and then you go to your small group meeting so it's mm -hmm. a i guess you could view it as a way of trying to integrate what's best about church life uh, what's really vital um, into 12-step context. Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, you mentioned in this chapter about, about the divided self. Yeah. Uh, as, as, uh, and that's what therapy is about and, and what religion is supposed to be about is reuniting these separated parts of self that we all yeah. feel. We all feel isolated, yeah. alone, separate from uh, and, and there's whole schools of addiction, Stephen, right? Yeah. Uh, that, that are kind of based upon that. Well, there's, yeah, I, I kind of review the 
the sort of quasi-theological interpretations of, of the roots of addiction in the chapter. Mm -hmm. and, and the first yeah. one I mentioned is the divided self, I think, because it's the oldest. Mm -hmm. You know, it goes back to Paul in Romans. It's usually his his description of his own inability to do the good. And, and Romans 7 is, is where a lot of people start. But then Augustine basically develops out into a whole theology, a whole theological anthropology. And then, then it's sort of, it, it takes on different forms in the modern era in Reinhold Niebuhr and others. But it's, um, it's so fundamentally true uh, to most people's experience that right. it's, it's a good starting point for thinking. It's the human about, condition. Yeah. You suggested earlier we talk about sin and the, the relationship of sin and addiction. And yeah. um, I found that's a, that's really, a dirty word, isn't it? That's a dirty it, word. It is. And, you know, <laughs> because clearly AA was part of the movement to get away from a moral explanation of alcoholism and replace it with a medical model, right? right. Disease model. So and that was successful. And I think everybody who suffers from addiction is glad to know that. But from a theological point of view, it's impossible to separate the two because for there's a, a moral reasons, element to it. Yeah. You do sinful stuff as an addict. The question becomes, to what extent is that a result of sin or is that the cause of sin or uh, enjoyed exploring? Yeah. And, and Wilson was hesitant to use the word. So he comes up with character defects. Yeah shortcomings. Uh, it does mention sin a, a few times, but I, I love the way uh, Bookman described sin. He, he, he would write a small s, a great big i, mm -hmm. and then a small n, mm -hmm. so that it's the i, it's the egotism yep. that is the sin. It's the ego taking on God-like dimensions. And that, that helps you understand, you know, uh, Genesis and the Garden of Eden and the Tree of Knowledge, and we will become like him or they will become like us, you know? And Well, I think uh, this, is, this is one of the places where the church has a lot to say that's helpful. It's understandable it why anybody in AA wouldn't want to lead with that. Right. But if you're really going to think about the relationship of addiction to the rest of human life, I mean, sin is a natural category for trying to understand that. And what a lot of people, one of the people I follow is uh, James Nelson. And mm -hmm. what he emphasizes is if you understand the Christian concept of sin correctly, right, it can really be helpful, not as something you do, but as something you are. And it's something that you've, it, it's sort of, it's inheritable in the sense that it precedes all all sinful behavior. It precedes everything, right? There's your 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 part. Your nature is corrupted in ways that you're not responsible for, but you're responsible for the consequences. And in that sense, it's exactly as it, it takes exactly the view that AA does. You're not yeah. responsible for the condition, but you're responsible for doing something about it and for the consequences of it. I define sin the way the Oxford group people have found this definition. Anything that separates me, right. anything that separates me from God, from you, or from my true self, that is the territory mm -hmm. that I need to keep a very close eye on because it's, it's inherent in yeah. the human condition. Right. And the thing, so we're no more sinners than I, well, we're pretty good at it, but <laughs> I mean, so is the rest of the world. I don't think it's it's looking at alcohol. I never looked at alcoholism as a sin. 
uh, I was Irish. We, we, we could never go there. We, would, we, would, <laughs> we wouldn't have a prayer. But, but the way it was described to me was we had better do something about it or we die. Right. Uh, other people are just going to kind of rust out. Yeah. But if we don't get a, a, a handle on this thing, the consequences are going to be dire. Right. That's the difference. So it's, it's back to that first step. The more desperate you are, the more in touch with it you are. I mean, the old timer yeah. who's sitting there with uh, 50 years like, like uh, I'm coming up on, you know, is not as in touch with it probably as the guy who just crawled in right and it's feeling intensely that pain of separation yeah uh, but but i've got to be reminded of it yeah or i'll lose it right yeah so uh is yeah you ask the question is is it sin or is it sickness or is is it is it sin and sickness eh i think it is a combination the greatest thing a, a fellow taught me was a, di a deeper and different understanding of unmanageability. Uh, forever grateful yeah. for that. Yeah. That it's not, it's not the consequences of my drinking. It's, it's, it's the state of my ego. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's what I have to get in, uh, in, in contact with. That then opens, opens me up to, to work in the steps. So this has been really interesting once again grateful for the opportunity tap into some of your wisdom and experience in in this area it's been uh, me too with you been, thank you so much been for, helpful. for inviting me yeah yeah uh and we will we'll we'll do one more session uh next time kind of kind of wrap it up and uh, look at some models what yeah. works you, you did a lot of going around the country looking at different yeah. things what works what doesn't work how are people able to travel uh between uh, these yeah. two different worlds and, and try to get the best of both. So, right. All right. Well, thank you once again, uh, Stephen. Thank you guys for, for listening. I, I hope we covered some uh, material here that, that's going to be helpful to you in, in your own recovery. And if these podcasts are helpful, uh, please help us spread the word. We're trying to carry the message. Um, I did kind of try to figure out what, what God's asking me to do. You know, we all have our, our, place in this thing and, and mine was uh try to get two-way prayer out to people in 12-step recovery because there's, there's something really vital that's there and then the second thing was uh, get people to take a different look a new look at the four absolutes because uh, while they're practiced in akron and cleveland uh that's about the extent of them so <laughs> want to spread that uh, around i think dr bob was on to something uh and bill had a fear of them but I think it's time to look at them again. And uh, I've found them tremendously helpful. So. Mm -hmm.